do any of you, or maybe I'm the only one, I'm willing to confess it, have any half-finished projects lying around your... Bless you, bless you, bless you. I see that hand. Half-finished part. I'm so glad I'm not alone in that. Okay, so years ago, I decided I was going to make a quilt for each one of my children, right? So I made a quilt for each of my boys, which now are in tatters. They love those quilts to the uttermost. You know, it was a quilt in the day. Remember those times with Ellen Woods and she'd throw the fabric over her head? And so then... I made, I started one for my oldest daughter, but halfway through, she decided she wanted like something that looked more like the Brady Bunch. And she didn't like the Victorian fabrics that she had chosen. So my littlest one at the time said, I want it, I want it. So I finished the quilt for her. And then it was my oldest daughter. So she picked out another pattern. Well, in the meantime, we moved to England. Now in England, I was asking everyone, do you know where a fabric shop is? Do you know where a fabric shop is? And they're just looking at me like, Um, I'm crazy. Or somebody sent me to like a shop that sells tiles and floorings. I'm like, this is not what I want, fabric. But when you say fabric to them, they think of like textiles. I found out if you want fabric and you're in English, ask for the haberdashery shop. Haberdashery. Isn't that a cute name? Haberdashery. So it took me like a year to figure out what I was supposed to say. And once I found out I needed the haberdashery, I located one that was about um, three miles from my house, and I got all these um, different fabrics from England, and I made what was called a granny's cottage, the quilt top. Well, in the meantime, she went off to Bible college. She comes back. I'm still working on the quilt because now I'm homeschooling, doing brunches, doing two Bible studies a week, and um, Sunday school, which was draining me dry. So I'm, I'm doing it in the increments of time. But then she comes back, she meets Michael, she gets married. I've just finished the quilt top and she said it needs to be bigger. So I add a border, but you know, I decide I add one border and I'm like, she says, no mom, bigger. So then I add another bigger uh, border, bigger border. And I decided to do appliques on it. It was so cute. But then I've got the applique border, but it needed another border. Anyway, this is all to say 18 years later, I've got the most adorable quilt top sitting in my personal clothing closet, mocking me every time I go in there, I'm unfinished, I'm unfinished, I'm unfinished, I'm unfinished. And I said to her the other day, I said, honey, I've got that quilt top, you know, still from, you know, when you were in high school and then college and then you got married, you probably don't want it. I was just like, mom, I do want it. Are you going to finish it? I'm like, yeah, any decade now. It's going to totally be done. But here's the thing that I love. God does not have unfinished product. Uh, you know, he doesn't have things like, yeah, I was working on Uranus, but then Saturn came along. And, you know, I just, just I got really into the rings, like, whoa. You know, so I, I thought, well, you know, I'll work on this, you know, and then hey, Beetle Geese, you know, it's like, whoa, it's so huge. Let me just, he doesn't get distracted. He finishes his projects. When we look out at the universe, we're not looking at like, what are you doing with that half over there? He finishes it. We, we look at the earth. The earth isn't half finished. You know, like, yeah, I'm going to work on Asia in a while. But, you know, I'm, I'm finishing up with, you know, the, the southern hemisphere. God finishes everything. He starts. God finished his plan of redemption so that Jesus could say on the cross, it is finished. Not while it's in the works. Anytime now. It is 
finished, paid in full. God finishes what he starts. Paul wrote, and I love this, and you know this scripture, it's Philippians 1.6, it's probably some of your favorite scriptures, and it says, being confident, absolutely assured of this very thing, having no doubts at all that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God will finish his work. God has brought you this far and he fully intends to bring you all the way into all of his promises. God has no obstacles. Jesus said in Mark 10, 27, for with God, all things are possible. We tend to think that maybe God has given up on us. Well, you know, Cheryl, once you hit that, you know, 491st sin, I just, you know, it's over. I found somebody else who's they're only on 400, you know, so I'm going to go with them for a while. I'll finish it for them. But you, you know, we think, or that we think that God found, you know, someone more important. You know, I'm sorry, Oprah Winfrey just got saved. Sorry, Cheryl, you know, but hey. Like he's going to go to the next person and just forsake us. But that's not how God is. Sometimes we think that we've done something that has disqualified us from his promises or his goodness. Even the disciples in the boat, in Mark 4.38, in the midst of the storm, even though they had seen all the miracles of Jesus, even though Jesus had said to them, let's go to the other side, woke up Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing, that we're about to die? And isn't that how we are sometimes in life? We, we've got a promise from God, but we think, I'm going to die before I get to that promise. It's just not going to happen for me. Or too often, we think that the best times are behind us. Oh yeah, that was when God used to answer my prayers. Those were the good times. Instead of realizing the best is yet to be. God having defeated Og and Sihon, the giants and the Israelites' lives was about to take them on into the promises. But often we think, oh, this is the trial. I know you defeated all those other enemies. I know you dealt with those giants. But this is the trial. This is the big one. This is the one I'm not going to make it through. This is the one that's going to ruin and take everything away. This is the obstacle of impossibility. The one that will keep me from the rest of the promises. Or maybe it's, it's been so long, I think the expiration date on the coupon of God's promises is over. I can no longer turn in that coupon and redeem it for the promises of God because it's been such a long time. Israel was faced with the obstacle of the Jordan River. Now, God had delivered them from the Egyptians. He had miraculously parted the Red Sea, dealt with their enemies, then sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness, kept his word to them that their parents would perish in the wilderness, but that Joshua and Caleb would miraculously be sustained and they could look at 
Joshua and Caleb and say, wow, those old guys are pretty miraculous. They had defeated the giants and the land of the giants had already been given over to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. But now God says, it's time to take up camp and move from the Acacia Grove to the very riverside of Jordan. Now the land that God has promised is in their sights, but it's out of their reach. They have been a nomadic people for 40 years, living in tents, living in desert areas. They don't swim. They don't have experience with rivers or seas or lakes. And they have no means of crossing this great expanse. There is no bridge, no landmass that crosses it, no ferries. And it's the fullest time of the year. It's the time when the current is the strongest, when the Jordan River is overflowing its banks, so now it's a mile wide. And there is more water than usual in the Jordan. But God, who finishes everything he initiates, has a plan. He has not brought the children of Israel to the bank of Jordan to say, look what you could have had. Look what's on the other side. Don't you want it? Isn't it so beautiful? Oh, well. But you know, sometimes that's how we treat God. Like, God, why did you show me these things if you're not going to give it to me? Why did you let me have these desires if it's not going to happen? But God brings us to this place. It is God who is working in us to will and to do of his own good will. He's putting these desires in us because he wants to take us to the other side of Jordan. God has a specific way for the children of Israel to deal with the obstacle in front of them. God has not asked, excuse me, could the most creative people please step forward? Any engineers in the crowd? He does not use engineers to build a bridge. He does not instruct the people on how to build a ferry. And we know that he could because he instructed Moses, uh, sorry, Noah on how to build an ark. He does not tell them to wait here until the fall when the Jordan River is not as full. Instead, God instructs the people, follow the ark and sanctify yourselves. These These two instructions are the way they are to deal with the obstacle. These two instructions are the way that we are all to deal with every obstacle to the promises of God. We follow the ark and we sanctify ourselves. This is what is required. Now, the people are to follow the ark of the covenant. Let me say this. The Ark of the Covenant is a symbolic representation of God's agreement with Israel. It's the Ark of the Covenant, the agreement. This morning as I was um, coming to church, I have to say personally, the Lord has been challenging me to be a blessing and to only call down blessings. I, I love cursings. 
I will be honest, I like the imprecatory psalms, which are the ones like break the teeth in their mouth. I feel like those are the powerful prayers, you know, the ones that slay the enemy. And the other day as I was praying, the Lord spoke to me and said, Cheryl, you can either be a blessing or a cursing, but you can't pray both in your prayers. Which one do you choose? You know, and I said, okay, Lord, I, I definitely want to pray blessing. I want to pray blessing on people. I want to pray, you know, blessing, you know, your blessings down. He says, all right, then it's blessings only. So I'm driving down the street and I see this really awful um, shop on the side. And I were like, oh, curse. No, save those people who own it. Those who go in it. You know, I was like, okay. I've been called to be a blessing and to bless others. And it's just totally changed my prayer life and everything. But we are called to this this blessing. So all this to say, as I'm driving, this Honda Accord cuts me off on the way to church. (laughs) And I'm called to be a blessing and to say blessings. And I'm like, it just cut me off. And I looked at it and said, but it's an accord. It's an agreement. It's a testimony. It's a covenant of Honda with that person driving. I will keep you safe, even though you drive erratically. It's an accord. God had an accord. He had an agreement with Israel that was represented by the Ark of the Covenant. It was where God met man. And inside this golden box, there was the manna, which reminded the Israelites of God's provision. There was Aaron's rod that budded, which reminded the people of God's living eternal authority. And there were the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments that reminded the people of God's righteousness and his law. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were two golden cherubim angels whose wings touched, and it was called the mercy seat, which reminded the people of the glory of God, the throne of God, the mercy of God. And it was in this place that God said, I will meet with you. But as we know, only the high priest was allowed to see the Ark of the Covenant. And he was only allowed to go in once a year to the holiest of holies. And he couldn't go in there without the blood sacrifice for all of Israel. And even before he went in, he had to offer a sacrifice for himself. And then he would take that blood and he would put it on the horns of the Ark of the Covenant, reminding the people of Israel of the glory of God and that God could not be approached in just any way that you wanted to. He was a holy God and there was only one way of approach. And that was through the high priest once a year. And when it was moved, it was shrouded in a veil of blue cloth and badger skin so that the people couldn't even see. And what they saw instead was something 
common, like badger skin and, and something beautiful like blue cloth, but they couldn't see the actual glory of the Ark of the Covenant. Only the poles that went through the rings on the corner of the Ark were visible to the people. And it was to be carried only by the Levites and specifically the tribe of Kohath, men who were between 30 and 50 years old. So this ark reminded these people, the the Hebrews, of God's covenant with them, his agreement, his accord with them, of God's continual provision for them, God's absolute authority, living authority, eternal authority, God's law, God's presence, God's holiness, and God's ways. The people were to keep a distance from the ark. They could not approach it on their terms. It was not safe by any other means than by God's prescribed measures. The distance would allow all the people to see the ark at all times. They were to keep their eyes on the ark for guidance because they had never gone this way before. I wanted to mention just 2 Samuel 6, 3 through 8. Um, At that time, later in Israel's history, under um, King David, when David had first taken the throne, the ark had been in Philistine territory, and then it had gone to a man's house named um, Obed, Obed Obed-Edom. Just in case you wanted to know his last name, Edom. No, I'm just making that if he was from Edom. But Obed. And when it was in Obed's house, his house was blessed. David wanted to move the ark to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. But he took the Philistine way. And he had the ark put on a cart that was drawn by oxen. And this young man, Uzzah, even though he was from the Levitical family, as he was sitting on the ark, uh, sitting on the cart, the the cart wheels hit a rock and it kind of shook the cart and Uzzah just put out his hand to steady the ark and immediately he was struck by God and he died because of the righteousness of the ark, the covenant with God and the unrighteousness of Uzzah who was just a human being. But God again was showing that the Art could not be moved in any unprescribed way. There was only one way, one agreement with mankind, and it had to be approached by a specific way. So the people were to keep their eyes on the ark for guidance. They had never gone this way before. They didn't know the land, the topography, or or where the rocks were, or the holes, or the ditches, or where the soft ground was, or the hard ground. They didn't know where they were going specifically, and the way, or the best course to take was untried and unexpected. God was going to do things differently than what they had experienced beforehand. Remember again, they were nomadic people. They were used to deserts. Now they're entering into a fertile land and they could not apply the desert methodologies to 
the promised land. They needed new ways, and they would learn these ways by watching, by watching what God was doing. They needed to keep their eyes on God's covenant with them and not on the obstacles against them. Secondly, verse 5, the people needed to sanctify themselves. Now, as we studied this week, we realized that sanctification means to set ourselves apart. So in other words, these people were to take time to dedicate themselves afresh to God's purposes and God's promises. They were to stop and consecrate themselves to God. I belong to you. I'm here because you brought me through. You brought my parents through. You sustained me through the wilderness. That's why I'm alive today for this moment, for this time. And so I'm giving myself to you. And they were to contemplate who God was and all he had done, to take time to think about how God had parted the Red Sea, how God had sent the manna every day without fail, except for on the Sabbath, how God had given them water out of the rock, how God had saved them from the deadly serpent's bite. They were to rehearse their history, and they were to contemplate all of God's works and think about the Lord of the whole earth, what that means and who God was. And they were to prepare their hearts for obedience to God, to follow the ark, to get ready for wonders and the unexpected Consecration or sanctification is so important. Without it, we miss the wonders of our life. In Philippians chapter 4, when Paul is instructing the Philippians about um, how to practically get the joy of the Lord in their lives. And remember, he's writing this from a prison, and he's an example to them of joy. He said, don't be anxious over anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. That with thanksgiving is so important because thanksgiving is part of sanctification. Thanksgiving is remembering all that God has done thus far. You, have you ever done that? Just realized how much God has done? You know, the enemy is constantly telling us that God is through with us for one reason or another. Either because we've done something or because he's, you know, moved on to better projects. And the enemy is always trying to tell us that. But Thanksgiving opens our eyes to how God is so intricately involved in the details of life. I've told you this story before, but it bears retelling. I was driving this one day, and I was just thinking of everything that is wrong in my life. Ever have days like that? Everything is just wrong. And I was telling the Lord, everything is just wrong in my life. You know, my husband loves his cell phone more than me. 
And I was just telling it to Jesus. And, and the Lord spoke to me and said, Cheryl, be thankful. I'm like, yeah, right. Or what? And, and the Lord spoke to me and said, what are you driving? Uh, a car. Can you be thankful for that? Well, yeah, it's running. Okay, you should be thankful for that too. Um, does it have gas in it? Uh, yes. Can you be thankful for the gas in it? Yes, Lord. Can you be thankful uh, for the person that fixed it so it's running? Yes, Lord. Can you be thankful for the wheels that are on the car? Yes, Lord. And Cheryl, what, what instrument are you using to steer the car? I said, you mean my hands on the wheel, Lord? You said, yes. How many fingers do you have? I have four fingers and thumbs. Are you thankful for those? Are they working? Yes, they're working. And, and then Cheryl, what, do you have eyes that you can see? Can you see the road? Yes, Lord. And why can you see the road? Because I've got Dr. Lyons who gives me contact lenses and he's wonderful. And it was just one thing after another. Can you hear? Yes, I can hear. Cheryl, you have so much to be thankful for. Does your husband love you? Yes. And his cell phone. But he loves me too. But he took me through. Are your children walking with Jesus? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. When wasn't at the time? That was my big complaint. But the Lord took me through all the places. And as I began to thank the Lord, my eyes began to get open wide to how present God was right now in my life, right here in this car. And you know that Thanksgiving, this sanctification, we need time alone with the Lord. It's in those alone times as we present to God, as we entrust our anxieties to God, and we begin to thank him for all that he's done, that we are strengthened in faith and our eyes are open to see the wonders of God. You know, every day we are experiencing one wonder after another. I mean, think about it. Your great-grandparents did not have microwaves right? We have running water. Do you ever get in your, in your shower and go, I have running water. This is a miracle and it's hot and cold. That to me is wonderful because we got one of those restricted, you know, water head, shower heads. And for a while, all we could get was cold water. So now every time I get in the shower, I'm like, thank you for hot water. Cause Brian found the restrictor and pulled it out. Don't tell the state of California. But you know, every day, I mean, think about the generations before us that never had running water. We live with this wonder. It's like, oh, water on, water off, water on, water off, hot water, cold water, water on, water off. We do this like it's just everyday thing. We, we have water. You know, most of us have our own teeth. Generations before didn't have their own teeth. I remember going to Yorktown, um, and it's where they have the reenactment village. And we were with our, um, our younger kids when they were younger. And I remember they said, do you have two choppers that are crossed from each other that can chop? Because they were pretending to induct them into George Washington's army. And they said, most people did not have teeth in those days. You know, whenever we see the movies, they've got these perfectly straight teeth as if they all had braces in England before they came over. I mean, we live with wonders wonders every day, wonders. And we need that sanctifying time 
to get ready for the wonders of God, what God was about to do. So God said, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to magnify Joshua, his authority and calling in the eyes of the people, verse 7. From this time forward, the people would recognize God's presence with Joshua and have confidence in Joshua's instruction. Secondly, he would assure the people that the living God was with them. They would always look back at the Jordan and say, God is with me because he was with me. God is still with me. It would serve as that guarantee, that absolute certainty, that assurance that God was with them. And it would be a guarantee of all the promises of God yet to come. Verse 8, God would not fail them. Even as he was faithful with the Jordan River, it would prove that God would drive out every enemy before them, whether it was the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. God would deal with every obstacle. They could look at it and say, God dealt with the Jordan. He will deal with you, you Hivite, you Jebusite, you. God will deal with you, even as he dealt with the Jordan River. The people were ready for a miracle. Now, God didn't tell them what he was going to do or how he was going to take them into the land. Their responsibility was only to follow the ark and to sanctify themselves. You know, God's saying, listen, I'll do my part, but you do your part. You know, so often, aren't we like, well, what are you doing, God? Well, 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 you know, yes, I gave that to you, but what are you doing with it? Yeah, I gave you my prodigal, but what are you doing with them? Why are you letting him eat that? Well, why is he going that way? We're always, you know, telling God how to do things. So God is saying, I've got two responsibilities for you. You do your part and I'll do my part. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to do my part. Well, what is your part? You'll see. That's how God deals with us still, isn't it? In the meantime, God called every tribe to pick out a man, one man from each of the 12 tribes, verse 12. He did not tell them why, and we'll find out in chapter 4 why he did this. It was simply an act of obedience. I love John chapter 13 when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And after this last supper with his disciples, he girds himself with a towel, and he he fills up a, um, a bowl with water. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, you know, what what are you doing, Lord? No, 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 no. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus said, Peter, what I am doing, you you do not understand right now. But you will understand later. That is so much how God deals with us. You do not understand. But I know what I'm doing. I've begun this work. I'll finish it. I know what I'm doing. Perhaps God was keeping them occupied so Joshua could do what God told him to do. Joshua then instructs the priests that are carrying the ark to step into the water. And he tells them that as soon as their souls touched the water, the water would rest. And that's exactly what happened. As soon as the priests stepped into the water, the current stopped. The water pulled back. The ground dried up. And the rest of the water flowed downstream into the Dead Sea. 
But 20 miles away up in Adam, the water was backed up. And the people packed up their camp and were ready to move on. And the priests stood in the midst of the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. And the people stood a half mile away and began to cross over. Now, I love the fact that everything that was causing the river to dry up was 20 miles away, where the Israelites could not see. You know, God is working in your life right now, 20 miles away, doing things that you cannot see right now. 20 years ago, he did something that you don't know. I don't know if I told you this story um, because I forget what I told, but about the couple that we met in England that had the Bible study in their house, only to find out that John Wesley had stayed in their house um, 100 years before and prayed over their house and dedicated that house for God's use. And now this dentist and his wife moved into this house. They're doing Bible studies in it. He was just thinking, what am I doing? I'm a dentist. I'm not a Bible teacher. When the historian came and knocked at the door and said, did you know that this house used to be lived? John Wesley stayed here when he was evangelizing England. I mean, God has done things 20 miles away in all of our lives. There is an unseen work being done. God is preparing people and and places and things that you'll meet. Like Jacob, where you will say, surely the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. Right now, God is working. He is working. He is working. He is working. When my daughter, um, my youngest daughter was a prodigal and I, I thought she was so out there. And when she came back to Jesus, she began to tell me story after story about how God was working and sending people here and having this person pray there. Crazy stories. And I had no idea that 20 miles away, God was working. Or those people that say, I don't know why, but you were on my heart and I was praying for you today. 20 miles away, God is working. The priest stood firm on dry ground. All the people crossed over to the other side. All the people crossed. All, every single person crossed safely on dry ground. And now they stood on the very land God had promised. The very land, the very place. The Lord of all the earth. Because the Lord of all the earth is not bound by rivers or seas, giants, armies, weapons. As we sing, who can stop the Lord, our God? Who can stop the Lord? There is no force on this earth strong enough to keep God from finishing his work, from working out his promises in our life. God began with the greatest obstacles in the Israelites' life, the giants and the Jordan River. It was a guarantee that God would finish the work, complete his promises, and do all that he said miraculously and by himself. In the same way, the Lord of all the earth has dealt with the greatest obstacles to the promises first. And let me say this, the greatest obstacle to the promises of God was the sin in your life. 
That was the greatest obstacle. That was what was keeping you as an alien, um, apart from the covenant of God. That was what held you back. Like the giants that barred the land and the Jordan that blocked it, it was your sin. But Jesus dealt with your sin on the cross. He dealt with the greatest obstacle. In Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12, we're told the story of the paralytic. And Jesus is in the house. He's preaching. There's no room. There's no way that anyone can get to the house. And these enterprising young men, four of them, they climb up on the roof. They pull the tiles off and they lower their friend right in front of Jesus. And Jesus says to this young man who is in obvious need of healing, obvious need. He's paralyzed. And no doubt these friends have lit him down in front of Jesus because they want to see their friend walk again. And you know what they want to hear from Jesus? They want to hear the word walk again. But what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven you. You see, this man could not receive the promises of God. He could not receive the healing of Jesus or anything else unless the big problem was dealt with. And that was the sin, the issue of sin. Our sin blocks us from the promises of God. It had to be dealt with. And Jesus dealt with the greatest thing, with the greatest obstacle. Jesus' sacrifice is a guarantee of all the promises of God. Listen to this, Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You see, Jesus is our ark of the covenant. He is where God meets us. He's the agreement. He is the new covenant. He is the accord. Jesus is the provision. He is the provision for our sins. He is the great sacrifice. He is God's ultimate authority. He is on the right hand of God. He is the authority of God, the eternal authority of God, the eternal living resurrected authority of God, the one who has authority even over death and ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the fulfillment of God's law. He is absolute righteousness. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserved. He was veiled in human flesh and his glory was not seen except on the Mount of Transfiguration and then it was only glimpsed. And Jesus goes before us, and for him, the waters and the obstacles part. There are no obstacles for Jesus. They stand back, and he stands firm in the midst of those things that block us and our impossibilities that we might pass and go into all the promises of God. And he is the guarantee of all that God has done and will do. So today, what is your Jordan River? 
What is that thing that seems to block you from all the promises of God? Because the ultimate Jordan River, your sins, it's already been taken care of. So what is that obstacle? What is that thing that you think is keeping you from the promises of God? That, that, that obstacle that seems to mock every promise of God that says, no, it can't come true. It's not going to happen because here I am and I'm wider than I've ever been. And I'm stronger than I've ever been. And I'm more full than you realize. What is that thing? What is that thing? And how do you deal with it? How are you to deal with it? Are you camped by the promises of God, but you're unable to cross into them? Can you see them and you have them in your sight? But you're thinking, I don't think I can do this. I don't know how I will do this. Well, let me tell you, dear sisters, this is, this is your job. This is your responsibility. Consecrate yourself to God. Sanctify yourself to God. Take some time alone. This is what you do. With every obstacle, this is what you need to do. You need to get alone with the Lord. And you need to think about all that he's done already in your life. And you need to give yourself again to the purposes of God. I am here because you brought me here. I wouldn't even be looking at the Jordan River if it wasn't for you bringing me to the Jordan River. I wouldn't even know this river was here. But you brought me to this place. You put me in these circumstances. So you must have a plan. And I want to be smack dab in the middle of your plan. Consecrate yourself to God. Contemplate the work of God. Consider the promises of God. Do this and then follow. Follow. Follow Jesus. Follow the work of God. Follow the word of God. Follow. Whatever he says, do it. Be prepared to do it. And I want to say, we need to get our eyes off the obstacles and onto the one who is promised. It does us no good to look at the obstacles because you know what we do? We glorify the obstacles. We glorify the obstacles more than God. We, we can get overly occupied with the obstacles. We're on the phone. Have you seen my obstacle? Have you heard what my obstacle is doing? Do you, do you, I got more information on my obstacle that I can't wait to tell you about my obstacle. And we're like, well, let me tell you about my obstacle. And we spend 20 minutes on our obstacle and they're like, do you want to pray? Yes, Lord, get rid of my obstacle. Amen. And it's all about the obstacle. And our life all becomes about the obstacle. How wide, how deep, how strong the obstacle. And where it's curving and where it's not curving. And, and what the temperature of the obstacle is. We're all about the obstacle. Get your eyes off the obstacle. Get your eyes on the Lord. Get your eyes on the Lord. You see, this is what faith does. Faith takes her eyes off the obstacle and puts them on the living God. And the more we concentrate on the living God, the more God is able just to step into the water for us because he already did and to remove the obstacle as if it was never there. 20 miles away, way upstream, 
put your eyes on the Lord and be ready to follow and do whatever he tells you to do, even if it doesn't make sense, even if you don't understand it, but because he said it, do it. As you contemplate, concentrate on following Jesus, Jesus will take care of the obstacle. He will take care of the obstacle. And then later in life, when you come to another obstacle, you'll say, I know what to do. I consecrate myself and I concentrate on God's word. Consecrate, concentrate. This is the way to deal with every obstacle. It's the way, you know, it starts with the Jordan, but it's the way to deal with the Hivite. It's the way to deal with the Girgashite. And I just wanted to say that word again. It's the way to deal with the Jebusite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the other obstacles in life and everything that mocks your progress and your standing and your embrace and your dwelling in the promises of God. This is your responsibility and the rest is God's. You just concentrate Consecrate and concentrate. That's it. God will do the rest. And then the glory is not, well, this is what I did. No, it's like all I did was consecrate and concentrate. And somebody goes, I've got, I've got an obstacle. What do I do? You don't go, well, what does it look like? How big is it? How long? No, you say, oh, consecrate yourself to God. Just be in his service. Say, Lord, you're big. You're great. Think about the Lord. Contemplate what he's done. And then concentrate on his word and his promises. And God will move the obstacles. I know. I am 57 years old and a half. And God has never failed me. This has been the way to get rid of every obstacle. There is no obstacle that can, that can stand against God. No obstacle. You know, Jesus said if we have faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, we can say to this mountain, get out of my way, and it will move. We can say to that tree, be plucked up. And it'll be plucked up from the roots and get out. But how do we do it? We do it by faith. What is faith? Faith is consecration, sanctification, consecration, and contemplation of God, of God, of God. God wants to do great things. You have promises. The land is before you. And God wants to do great things in our midst. Wonders. Wonders. Things we can't do to help us cross places we can't naturally cross. And it's going to be by God. We are in the last days. And if ever the world needed to see a God that is living, the God of all the earth, and to hear about the God that dries up rivers so his people can cross, it's now. And so he gives us, he allows obstacles in our life that strengthen our faith, that get us 
needing to consecrate and concentrate that he might do the work. And what do we come out? We come out with a guarantee, a guarantee of all the rest of the promises and a testimony. If my God did this, my God can do anything. Let's pray. Lord, these are your daughters, and you know, you know they're Jordan rivers. You know they're Hittites, they're Hivites, they're Jebusites, they're Girgashites. You know their struggles. You know their doubts. You know their insecurities. You know their hurts. You know their fears. You know their, you know the, the mocking voice of the enemy that speaks to them. Lord, you know it all. And Lord, I pray, I pray that you would be greater than that voice to them. Lord, as they consecrate, as they spend this time alone with you, oh God, I pray first, give them time alone with you. Give them time alone with you. And Lord, during that time, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them as the Lord of all the earth. The Lord that has made a covenant through Jesus Christ that is unbreakable, unshakable, unconquerable. The God who is for them and with them and will go before them. The God who loves them, who has never failed, who finishes all his work and completes all his promises and never lies. That you would reveal yourself as the all-powerful God, the God that can part Red Seas, that can bring the manna down daily, that can bring water from rocks, that can dry up flowing rivers, that can defeat enemies. Lord, that you would remind them of your promises and that you would give them even new promises to stand in embrace. And Lord, that they would concentrate on Jesus that they would look at Jesus and they would see Jesus and you would give them a fresh vision of Jesus, of who he is, our provider, our authority, our righteousness, our mediator, our guide, our mercy seat. Lord, these are your daughters, and you love them each individually so very much. And you long to give them all the great things you've promised them, and you will, you will. Give them a fresh sense of your greatness and your power. Give them the surety right now to walk in the guarantee of all the promises of God through Jesus right now. So we ask this because of Jesus. Amen.